Theorem, a math podcast with no quiz at the end. Uh, I'm Evelyn Lamb, one of your hosts. I'm a freelance math and science writer in Salt Lake City, Utah, and this is your other host. Hi, I'm Kevin Knudsen, professor of mathematics at the University of Florida. Uh, I like your background, Evelyn. I mean, our, our, our listeners can't can't see it, but it looks like you had a nice camping trip somewhere in Utah. Uh, yes, there's actually a couple years ago. I, okay. I, we're going to describe this in great detail for all the listeners who can't see it. No. <laughs> uh, but I, this was a camping trip in uh, Dinosaur National Monument uh, mm. kind of on the Utah-Colorado border, which is a really cool place to visit. Excellent, um, yeah. Yeah, so, it's very, it's very yeah. beautiful over there. Yeah. So uh, how's things? Just Oh, not too bad. A bit smoky here. We're getting mm. a lot of wildfire smoke from the West Coast. And mm -hmm. it you know makes some of those outdoor activities that are so fun a little less fun. Um, right, right. So yeah, well, my, my, big advent, out. my big adventure lately was getting my son settled into his new apartment in, uh, in Vancouver. And it was my first time on an airplane in a year and a half. That was weird and... And of course, Vancouver is such a lovely city, though. We had a good time. Mm -hmm. So he's good. he's all set up and starting grad school and his nice new adventure. So anyway. Yeah. And he's kind of as almost as far as he can be in a populated place in North America. That's correct. <laughs> that's uh, yeah, it's like like almost 3000 miles. That's far. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. That's great. Anyway, enough about that. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Well, today we're very happy to have Joel David Hampkins join us. Joel, would you like to uh, introduce yourself and say a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. I'm a mathematician and philosopher at the University of Oxford. Um, actually, it's something of an identity crisis that I have, whether I'm a mathematician or a philosopher, because my <laughs> original training was in mathematics, my PhD was in mathematics, and for many, many years, I counted myself as a mathematician. Um, but somehow over the years, my work became increasingly uh, concerned with philosophical issues, and mm -hmm. I managed somehow to turn myself into a philosopher. And so here in Oxford, my main appointment is in the philosophy faculty, mm. although I'm also affiliated with the mathematics department. Um, and so I don't really know what I am, whether I'm a <laughs> mathematician or a philosopher. I do work in uh, mathematical logic and philosophical logic, really all parts of logic. Um, and especially connected with the mathematics and philosophy of the infinite. So, mm. well, math is so just this... kind of—it's just applied philosophy anyway, right? I mean... <laughs> <laughs> this might be a dangerous question, but um, what are like? Do you feel a big cultural difference between being in a math department and a philosophy department? Oh, there's huge cultural differences between math and philosophy, I mean, on many different issues. And they come up again and again when I'm teaching, especially, or interacting with colleagues and so on. I mean, for example, there's a completely different attitude about uh, reading original works. Uh, in mm. philosophy, this is very important to read the original authors. But in mathematics, we tend to read the sort of newer accounts, even of old theorems. Um, and maybe for good reason, because oftentimes those newer accounts, I think, uh, become improved with mm -hmm. greater understanding or more connections with other, uh, with, with other work and so on. Uh, okay, but one can certainly understand the value of reading the original authors. Mm -hmm. um, and there's many other uh, uh, issues like that, um, uh, cultural differences between math and philosophy. Hmm. Yeah, well, I when I was at the University of Utah, I taught math history a couple times, and I I was trying to use some original sources there, and it it is very difficult to read original sources in math. I don't know if part of that is just because we aren't used to it, but part of it, I I do feel like the language and 
you know, just the way we talk about things changes a lot really quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it makes it so that even reading papers from the 1920s or something, you sometimes feel like, what are they talking about? And then you find out, oh, they're just talking about degree four polynomials, but they're using like terms that you just don't use anymore. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And oftentimes, though, it's really interesting when there's an old work that uses what we consider to be modern notation. Like if you look at Cantor's original writings on the ordinals, say, mm-hmm. it's completely contemporary. His notation, he writes things that contemporary set theorists would be able to understand uh, easily. Mm. And even even to the point of using the same Greek letters, alpha and beta, to represent ordinals and so on, which is what we still do today. And mm-hmm. so it's quite remarkable when the original author's notation survives. That's amazing, I think. Yeah. 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 So we invited you here to share your favorite theorem. What have you decided to share with us today? Well, I'm, I'm, I found it really difficult to decide what my favorite theorem is, but I, I want to tell you about a th- one of my most favorite theorems, which is the fundamental theorem of finite games. Mm. So, so this is the theorem. It was proved by Zermelo in 1913. Okay. And it's the theorem that asserts that in any two-player finite game of perfect information, uh, one of the players has a winning strategy or else both of players have drawing strategies if it's a game mm-hmm. that allows for draws. Um, so that's the theorem. So what, what is the definition of yeah. a game? Yeah. <laughs> this is, well, this so, is like yeah. the most mathematical thing to say, you know, like, yeah. okay, games, we've all played them for, starting from when we were, you know, two years old or something. <laughs> but like, now we need to sit down and define it. Yeah. Well, that's one of the things that really excites me about this theorem, because it forces you to grapple with exactly that question. What is mm. a game? What is a finite game? What does it mean? And it's not an easy question to answer. I mean, mm. the, the, the question, the theorem itself, I think, is something that you might think is obvious. For example, if you think about the game of chess, well, maybe you would think it's obvious that, look, either one of the players has a winning strategy or they both have drawing strategies. But when it comes to actually proving that fact, then maybe it's not so obvious, even for such a game as chess. Mm-hmm. And then you're forced to grapple with exactly the question that Evelyn just asked, you know, what, what is a finite game? And right. what, what, is, what is a strategy? What is a winning strategy? What does it mean to have a winning strategy? And so on. So there's, um, there's a wonderful paradox that surrounds the issue of finite games called the hypergame paradox. So if you have a naive account of what what a finite game is. Maybe you think a finite game is a game so that, you know, all plays of the game finish in finitely many moves or something. Okay. So that seems like a kind of reasonable definition of a game, of a finite game. And then, and then there's this game called hypergame. And the way that you play hypergame is, uh, say, if you and I are going to play hypergame, then the, the first player, maybe you go first, you choose a finite game. And then, and <laughs> And then we play that game. And that's how you play hypergame. So the first player gets to pick which finite game you're going to play. Mm-hmm. And then you play that game. And if we said every finite game is a game so that all plays end in finitely many moves, then it seems like this hypergame would be a finite game because you picked a finite game and then we play it and then the game would have to end in finitely many moves. So it mm-hmm. seems like hypergame itself is a finite game. But then, the paradox is that 
If hypergame is a finite game, then you could pick hypergame as your first move. Right. Okay, but then we play hypergame. Mm -hmm. But we just said when playing hypergame, it's allowed to play hypergame as the first move. So then I would pick hypergame as my first move in that game. And then you you and the next move would be to start playing hypergame and then you could say hypergame again. And then I could say hypergame and so on. And we could all just say hypergame all day long forever. But that would be an infinite play. Mm. And so what's going on? Because it seems contradictory. We proved first that every play of hypergame ends in finitely many moves, but then we exhibited a play that didn't. And mm. so that's a kind of paradox that results from being naive about the answer to Evelyn's question, what mm -hmm. is a finite game? If you're not clear on what a finite game is, then you're going to end up in this kind of Russell paradox situation. That's exactly, yeah. Game. Yeah, that's what yeah. I was thinking of. Yeah, the, the sets that don't contain themselves, right? Mm -hmm. yep. Right, exactly. Yep. It's actually a bit closer to the what's called the Borali-Forti paradox, which is the paradox of the class of all ordinals is well-ordered, but it's mm. bigger than any given ordinal. And so it's something like that. So mm -hmm. part of, so the, the, if you think a lot about what a finite game is, then you're going to be led to the concept of a game tree. And a game tree is the sort of tree of all possible positions that you might get to. So there's the initial position with, at the start of the game, and the first player has some options that they can move to. Mm -hmm. And those are the sort of the child nodes of that root node. Mm -hmm. And then those nodes lead to further nodes for the choices of the second player and so on. And so you get this game tree. And, and the thing about a finite game is that it... it it, well, one reasonable definition of finite game is that the whole game tree should be finite. Mm. <clears throat> so that in, finite, in finitely many moves, you're going to end up at a leaf node of the tree, and every leaf node should be uh, labeled as a win for one of the players or the other, mm. or as a draw, or whatever the outcomes are. And so if you have the finite tree conception of what it means to be a finite game, then hyper game is not a finite game because mm -hmm. at the first move there's sort of infinitely many different mm -hmm. games you could choose and so the game tree of hyper game won't be a finite tree it will be an infinite tree it will be infinitely branching at its first node mm -hmm. um, and so right so if, if you're if you have this game tree conception then a finite game can mean a, a game with a finite game tree and then we can understand the, the fundamental theorem of finite games. So my favorite theorem uh, is the assertion that in any finite game like that, with a finite game tree, then one of the players has a winning strategy or both players have drawing strategies. And what does it mean to be a strategy? I mean, what is a strategy? If you think about chess strategies or strategies as they're talked about sort of conventionally, then oftentimes <clears throat> people just mean a kind of heuristic you know, the strategy of control the center or something. But mm -hmm. <clears throat> but in mathematics, we want a more precise notion of strategy. So controlling the center isn't really a strategy. That's just a heuristic. It doesn't tell you actually what to do. So a strategy is a function on the game tree that tells you exactly which moves to make whenever it's mm -hmm. your turn. And then a play of the game is basically a, a, a branch through the game tree 
And it conforms with the strategy if whenever it was your turn at a node in the game tree, then it, it, it did what the strategy was telling you to do at that node. Mm -hmm. So a strategy is winning if all the plays that conform with that strategy, you know, end, end up in a win for that player. Okay. So is, there, is this the point of view Zermelo took when he proved this? So yeah, Zermelo had, didn't have he he didn't quite have it all together, and this is maybe related to the fact that we we don't actually read Zermelo's original paper now mm -hmm. when we want to prove the fundamental theorem of finite games because we have a much richer understanding, I think, of of this theorem now. I mean, for example, in my in my proof writing book, I gave three different proofs of this theorem, and and Zermelo didn't have the concept of a game tree or even a finite game in terms of game trees like I just described. Rather, he was focused specifically on the game of chess. And he was thinking about positions in chess as like pictures of the board with the pieces and where they are. Mm. But nowadays, we don't really think of positions like that. And there's a kind of problem with thinking about positions like that. Because if you think about a position in chess, like a photograph of the board, then you don't even know whose turn it is, really. Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. this the same position can arise you know, and it could be different players' turns. And you don't know, for example, whether sometimes whether the king has moved yet or not. But that's a very important thing, because if the king has moved already, then castling is no longer an option for that player. Right. Or, or you need to know also what the previous move was in order to apply the en passant rule correctly and so on. So if you mm -hmm. just have the board, you don't know whether en passant is allowed or not. I mean, it's en passant is one of these finicky rules with the pawn captures where you can, you can, you can take it if the previous player had moved two steps, then you, and your pawn is in a certain situation, then right. you can capture anyway. So I mean, it's a technical thing; it doesn't matter too much. But the point is that just knowing the photograph of the board doesn't tell you, mm -hmm. um, doesn't tell you whose turn it is, and it doesn't tell you all the information that you need to know in order to. Uh, in order to know what the valid moves are. So we think of now a position in a game is a node in the game tree, mm -hmm. and that has all, the, all of the information that you need. So Zermelo's proof was concerned with games that had the property that there were only finitely many possible configurations, like mm -hmm. chess. There's, mm -hmm. only finitely many, there's only finitely many situations to be in in chess, and, and he argued on the basis of, of that. But really, it amounts to arguing with the finiteness of the game tree in the end. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, is this at all related to Nash's equilibrium theorem? So I was, I was scrolling Twitter the other day, as one does when one has nothing else to do. And I saw a, a tweet that had, uh, it, had a, it was a screenshot, and it was the entire uh, paper that Nash published in the Proceedings of the National Academy proving his equilibrium theorem. I mean, it's a remarkable thing that it's just a few paragraphs. Right. Is, is there any connection here? Right. So actually, there's a kind of nomenclature. There's, there's three different subjects connected with game theory. There's game mm -hmm. theory, which Nash equilibrium and so on is usually considered part of game theory. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's there's another subject standing next to it, which is often called combinatorial game theory, or it's sometimes also called the, the theory of games. Mm. Uh, and this is the, the study of, um, uh, of actual games like Nim or chess mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. Go and so on, or the, the Conway game values are part of this 
uh, this subject. And then there's a third subject, which I call the, the logic of games, which is a study of things like the fundamental theorem of finite mm. games and the sort of the logical properties. So to my way of thinking, the Nash equilibrium is not directly connected with the theory of games, but rather is a, is a core concept of game theory, mm. which is studying things like the stability of probabilistic strategies and so mm -hmm. on. Whereas combinatorial game theory isn't usually about those combinatorial strategies, but about sort of logically perfect strategies right. and optimal optimal play and so on. And that isn't so much connected to my way of thinking with the Nash equilibrium. Mm -hmm. So fine, I hand you a finite game. It has a winning strategy. Can you ever hope to find it? Oh, I see. Is it computable? Well, yeah. you know, this is the the big issue. Even in chess, for example, I mean, chess yeah. has a finite game tree. And so in principle, we can, in in the sense of computability theory, there's a computable strategy you can prove because it's a finite game. So this, the strategy is a finite function and every finite mm -hmm. function like that is definitely computable. Mm -hmm. And and we can even say more about how to find the strategy. I mean, one of the proofs is this backpropagation proof. You look at the game tree and you propagate, you know, you know the, the leaf nodes, the terminal nodes are labeled as a win and you can mm -hmm. propagate that information up the tree. But it, it turns out that the, the game tree of chess is so enormous right. that that the, the, it, it wouldn't fit in the universe even if you used every single atom right. to <laughs> represent a node of the tree. And so in that sense, you, you can never write a computer program that would compute the perfect chess play. It's just too big. The strategy, mm -hmm. if you're if you're really talking about the strategy on the whole game tree, then the, the game tree is just too enormous to fit in the universe. And so it's not a practical matter, right? right. But th theoretically, like in terms of Turing computability or something, then of course it's computable. There's some other issues. For example, I've done a lot of work with infinitary games. I mean, this connects my interest with infinity. Uh, and uh, it turns out that there's there are some some positions, say in infinite chess, which I've studied, we've, we identified computable positions in infinite chess uh, for which uh, white has a has a winning strategy, but uh, but there's no computable winning strategy. So if, if the players play computably, in other words, according to a computable procedure, then it will be a draw. So, so it's very interesting, this interaction between uh, uh, optimal play and, and computable optimal play. It's not always, they don't always align. Mm -hmm. So I've got to ask you to back up a little bit. What is infinite chess? Yeah. Oh, I see. Infinite chess. So imagine an, uh, a chess board without any border. It just goes mm. forever in, in all four directions. But you start okay. with so the same. You, no. you don't start with infinite number. Yeah, I'll let you keep okay. going. Yeah. Yeah. So, of course, infinite chess. I mean, we can imagine playing infinite chess you know, at a cafe or something, but it, it's not a game that, that you sit down in a cafe to play. It's a game that mathematicians think, what would it be like to play, you know, if this if the board looked like this or if it looked mm -hmm. like that. And so sure. there's no standard starting position. You you, you present a, a starting position and you say, well, in this position, it has a very interesting property. So Richard Stanley asked a question, for example, um, and one of, uh, on math overflow, and that sparked my interest in this question. But one of the theorems that we proved was that you can have positions in infinite chess um, 
that uh, that white has a winning strategy. So it's going to win infinitely many moves. It's going to make checkmate infinitely many moves. But it's not made in N for any N, for any finite N. In other words, mm. black can make it take as long as he wants. But it's it's hopeless. In other words, black is... Black can say, oh, this time it's going to, I know you're going to win. This time it's going to take you a hundred moves. Mm -hmm. And, or he could say, this time it's going to take you a million moves. You know, for any number, he can make it, delay it that long. But still, white is going to win infinitely many moves on every, you know, following the winning strategy. So these are called games with game value omega. And, and then we produce positions with higher game, higher ordinal game values, omega squared, omega cubed, and so on. The current record mm -hmm. is, Omega to the fourth, so these transfinite game values come in, um, and so it's really quite fascinating uh, how that happens. Well, knowing that knowing that you like logic and, and and philosophy so much, now I see why you like these games, right? I mean, it, it, it's it's just kind of a logic puzzle in some sense. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, and what made you choose this theorem as your favorite theorem? Well, I mean, there's a lot of things about it to like the, the first of all, the, the, what I mentioned already, it, it forces you to get clear on the definitions, which I find to be interesting. And also it has it has many different proofs. I mean, as I mentioned, there's already three different proofs in my three different elementary proofs. But some of those proofs lead immediately to to stronger theorems. For example, there's a, a slightly more relaxed notion of finite game where you have a game tree uh, so that all plays are finite, but the tree itself doesn't have to be finite. So yeah. this would be what's called a, a well-founded tree. And then these would be called the clopen games because in the, in the product topology, the winning condition uh, amounts to a clopen set in that case. Um, and then the Gale-Stewart theorem proved in the 50s is that infinitely long games whose winning condition is an open set uh, those are also determined. One of the players has a winning strategy, open determinacy. And then Tony Martin proved that, generalized that to Borel determinacy. Mm. Uh, so Borel, Borel games also have this property. So infinite games whose winning condition is a Borel set uh, in the product uh, space is uh, are determined. One of the players has a winning strategy. And then if you ask, well, what a, maybe all games are determined. Uh, uh, in the sense that one of the players has a winning strategy, you know, wh whether or not the winning condition is Borel or not. Um, and this is called the axiom of determinacy. And it, it, it's refutable from the axiom of choice for games on Omega, say you can refute it. But mm -hmm. it turns out that if you drop the axiom of choice, then the consistency strength of that axiom has enormous strength. It has large cardinal strength. In large cardinal set theory, the strength of the axiom of determinacy is infinitely many wooden cardinals, if, if, mm -hmm. if you've ever heard of these large cardinals. And for example, under AD, the axiom of determinacy, it follows that every set of reals is Lebesgue measurable and every set of reals has the property of Baer. And so there's all these mm. amazing regularity set theoretic consequences from that axiom, which is just about playing these games. And so mm. what I view is the whole topic, the fundamental theorem of finite games just leads you on this walkway to these extremely deep ideas that come along much later. And I just find that whole thing so fascinating. Hmm. So that's why I like it so much. 
So I guess I want to pull you out of these extremely deep things into something sure. much more shallow, which is, um, are there game like you know games that kids play or that that like people play that are infinite games like by their nature? Oh, I see. Uh, I mean, I've studied quite a, a number of different infinite games. For example, well, I have a master student now. He just wrote his dissertation, his master's dissertation on infinite checkers. But we're in the UK, so we call it infinite drafts here. Mm, right. um, and, uh, but I guess ordinary checkers is usually just on an 8 by 8 board, and so mm. that doesn't count as infinite. <laughs> um, so, I mean, uh, uh, also there's, um, uh, I've done some work on uh, infinite connect four i mean infinitary versions of connect four and mm -hmm. infinite sudoku and infinite go and there, there's infinite analogs of many of these games I that guess are quite interesting kind of what i'm wondering is so in my mind i like there maybe there's a game where you can like go back and forth forever and there's no rule in the game that says you can't just like walk towards the opponent and then walk backwards and then 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 the game tree might not be finite or maybe i don't quite understand right how no no works. you're absolutely right about that yeah in that situation the game tree would be infinite i mean it's related for example in chess in in chess there's this threefold repetition rule yeah if you repeat mm -hmm. the situation three times then it's a draw but actually the actual rule isn't that it's automatically a draw but that either player is allowed to call it a draw mm -hmm. right and that's a difference because if you don't insist, if the player chooses, if both players choose not to call the draw, then actually the game tree of chess would be infinite then, right? right? Because right. you could just keep moving back and forth forever, mm -hmm. right? And and uh, and there's also another rule, which is not so well known unless you're playing a lot of chess tournament play, which is the 50-move rule. And this is the rule in chess tournaments that they use, um, where if there's 50 moves without a pawn movement or a capture then it's a draw hmm. and the reason for that is uh i mean of course i view both of those rules as kind of practical rules just to have an end to the game right so that it doesn't just go on forever in the way that you describe but when we when we were deciding on the rules for infinite chess we just got rid of those rules and we thought, look, if you if you want to play forever, that's a draw. So any infinite play is a draw is the the real rule to my way of thinking. Mm -hmm. And and the reason why we have the threefold rule, the threefold repetition rule and the 50 move rule is just those are proxies for the real rule, which is that infinite play is a draw. Um, but it doesn't quite answer your question. I'm sorry. I don't know any children's games that are just <laughs> naturally infinite already. Name the biggest number. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I've also been sitting here wondering, like, can you make a game trio, like other children's games that aren't maybe on a board? Like, Tic-Tac-Toe, of course, is the first thing I think. But then what about Duck, Duck, Goose or Simon mm. Says or you know, these right, other right. children's games that aren't really board games? And, you know, can you even work those into the framework of these finite games or, or infinite games or not. Yeah, that's and quite I, interesting. I don't know. 
There is this game of Nim where you play with stacks mm -hmm. of coins and you remove coins from one stack or another. It's a beautiful game with a really nice uh, resolution mm -hmm. to it in terms of the strategy. But that game has infinitary versions where the stacks have infinite are allowed to have infinite ordinal heights. Mm -hmm. And basically the classic proof of the Nim strategy works just as well for ordinals. Um, mm -hmm. and, and it's, it's, so if you, if you think about the sort of the balancing strategy where you look at the things base two and so on, and, well, ordinals have a base two representation in ordinal arithmetic also, and you can still carry out the balancing strategy, even when the stacks have infinite height. Never occurred to me to think about infinite ordinal height NIM. <laughs> well, you never have that many toothpicks, right? I mean, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's just <laughs> limited by my environment, I guess. Um, <laughs> yeah. Although I, I must say that I, I've spent a lot of my mathematical career sort of avoiding things with with uh, too much infinity in them because they're very intimidating to me. Mm -hmm. So maybe mm -hmm. we have kind of different mathematical uh, <laughs> outlooks. Right, right. Yeah. So the other thing we like to do on this podcast is invite our guests to pair their theorem with something. So, so what, what, what pairs well with the fundamental theorem of finite games? Well, there's only one possible answer to this, and I, I worry that maybe I'm cheating by saying, of course, I have to pair it with the game of chess. I sure. Mean, uh, because yeah. the Zermelo's theorem was really focused on chess, and he proved that, look, in chess, either white or black has a winning strategy, or else both of them have drawing strategies. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, I never played a lot of chess when I was a child, but... But when I had kids, they got involved in the scholastic chess scene in New York, which is which is quite hyperactive mm. and uh, and fascinating. And so my kids were playing a lot of chess and I went to hundreds of chess tournaments and so on. And and uh, um, and so I, I started playing chess and I I, uh, I learned a huge amount of chess uh, from the they had such great coaches on those uh, at their schools and so on. And um and uh, but actually, I'm a pretty mediocre chess player, even after having played now for so many years. Mm -hmm. um, and and one of my co-authors on the infinite chess papers that I wrote uh, is quite talented chess player. He's a national master, Corey Evans. He's he was a philosophy graduate student when uh, when I met him at the City University of New York, where, which is where my appointment was at the time. And. Uh, and so I, I got to uh, meet a lot of uh, a lot of really talented chess players, and it was really great working with him on that infinite chess stuff because uh, I realized that the actual chess knowledge is really focused on the eight by eight board, mm -hmm. and that once you go to these much bigger boards, the the chess grandmasters even become a little bit at sea, and so I would I would know what I'm trying to do, you know, mathematically to create these positions with high game values. And I would show them this crazy position with, you know, 20 bishops and, and, and <laughs> hundreds of rooks and so on. And, and, uh, and, and I would talk a little about it and they would say, hang on, this pawn is, is hanging here. It's totally unprotected. And it would completely ruin my position, you know. And so mm -hmm. they, the, mm -hmm. their chess ability, their chess reading ability was such that they could look at these crazy infinite positions and 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 point out 
flaws with the position and that was really something that was important for our collaboration <laughs> to these chess positions are so finicky these huge infinite ones uh, and so many details are are running on whether the things are protected properly and whether because oftentimes you're have to argue that the play has to proceed according to this main line mm -hmm. and if you want to prove the theorem you have to really prove that and and if there's some little upset that means that the flow of play isn't exactly like what you thought then the whole argument is basically falling apart um, and so it really was depending on on all of that. So, um, so I really had a great time interacting with a lot of these uh, a lot of these talented chess players. It was really fantastic. I'm a lousy chess player. Yeah. <laughs> Is there a lot of interest uh, among chess players in the mathematical uh, study of the game of chess? Even like leaving aside the infinite versions, but um, you know, finite. For you know, I assume there are theorems being proved about regular chess. Um, do do players care about them much? Or I, well, some of them definitely do, and actually, there's a huge overlap, of course, between chess players and mathematicians. Oh yeah, um, that's true. Of, sure. of course, and so maybe maybe a lot of the interest is coming from that overlap. But for example, there was a problem that I had asked. I think I asked it on Math Overflow. Um, uh, take chess pieces on an empty board take a full set of chess pieces and just throw them at the board mm -hmm. yeah so you 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 get some position what's the chance that it's a legal position mm -hmm. yeah so in other words a random random assignment of pieces yeah and you can you can make some calculations and and prove some interesting things about the likelihood that it's a legal position that yeah. it, in other words a legal position meaning one that could in principle arise in a game in a right. legal game right yeah. and uh do you happen to recall like any ballpark you know is this like a yeah one percent it's chance exceedingly of... way less than one percent okay. it's exceedingly mm -hmm. unlikely okay. yeah if you if you allow if you insist on all the pieces because then there haven't been any mm -hmm. captures oh. so the pawns the pawns have to be sort of perfect there has to be one right. in each column and opposing mm -hmm. and already just just because of that that already makes it extremely unlikely to happen if you mm -hmm. have all the pieces right. um, and then there was some other yeah some other people answered on math overflow i think giving better bounds when you don't have all the pieces and so on but it's it, it wasn't quite open but i think uh, the general conclusion was that it's extremely unlikely mm -hmm. that it, you get a legal a legal position well that makes sense i mean Given the complexity of the moves, it would be pretty remarkable if a, ran, a random placement would, would actually work. So, right, right. Yeah. There's, there's some amazing, there's a book by um, Raymond Smolian about the chess detective. And, and he has this, many, many instances, sort of like, he gives you a chess position and, and you have to deduce, like, what was the previous move? Because it's a really, these positions are often extremely strange. Like you think, how could that possibly arise? And, and, uh, and, and you have, you can often, so there's sort of logic. I mean, he's a logician. And so there's sort of lo chess logic puzzles to figure out what the previous move was. And, and there's a, often a story associated with the game that, mm -hmm. you know, so it must have been black who was the murderer because, you know, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so it's really some fascinating work that way. I really like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Well, this has been uh, informative. I've certainly learned a lot today. Um, yeah. And, and, and so we, we like to give our guests a chance to um, advertise. Uh, where can we find you online? And, and if there's anything you want to, uh, to promote, we're, we're happy to let you do it. Oh, I see. Well, you can find me online. I have a blog, jdh.hampkins.org. And also I'm on Twitter uh, and also on Math Overflow. And uh, I just published a number of books. So one of them I mentioned already, it's called Proof in the Art of Mathematics. And this is a book for uh, uh, aspiring mathematicians to learn how to write proofs, Proof in the Art of Mathematics with MIT Press. And I have another book, a philosophy book, called Lectures in the Philosophy of Mathematics, also with MIT Press. And that is a, uh, a book uh, uh, that I use for my lectures on the philosophy of mathematics here in Oxford. Um, and it's, uh, I would say, a kind of uh, grounded in mathematics perspective on issues in the philosophy of mathematics. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and if I can uh, praise you a little bit, I, I will say something that I have enjoyed um, ever since I've been following you is that you, uh, some, of, some of the things you write are about like very technical, you know, deep mathematical things, but you've also had some really neat like puzzles that you've shared with children and stuff like that. I remember I was working on a math circle project one time about paper folding and cutting and and you had a fun, um, I think it was like you show someone a configuration of, of holes in a piece of paper and say, can you fold the paper so that you just have to punch one hole in this folded paper to get the holes looking like this or something mm -hmm. like that. And so it kind of spans a, a, a big, um, a big range of mathematical like sophistication and what level you want to to jump into something. So I think that's something fun and uh, other people who might be looking for activities like that might enjoy it. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm so glad to hear you mentioned that project. So that uh, those projects are all available on my blog. If you click on the Math for Kids link, which is one of the buttons on my blog. And they all arose because I was going into my daughter's school every year or a couple times a year uh, with these different projects, uh, including that one and a number of other ones. So I have a, I have about a, a dozen or more Math for Kids projects on my blog. Yeah. Very cool. Well, thanks for joining us. I enjoyed talking about chess, a game that I have probably played, you know, 10 times in my life. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thanks, Joel. Thanks for listening to My Favorite Theorem, hosted by Kevin Knudsen and Evelyn Lee. The music you're hearing is a piece called Fractalia, a percussion quartet performed by four high school students from Gainesville, Florida. They are Blake Crawford, Gus Knudsen, Del Mitchell, and Bao Chan Nguyen. You can find more information about the mathematicians and theorems featured in this podcast, along with other delightful mathematical treats, at Kevin's website, kpknudsen.com, and Evelyn's blog, Roots of Unity, on the Scientific American Blog Network. We love to hear from our listeners, so please drop us a line at myfavoritetheorem at gmail.com, or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter. Kevin's handle on Twitter is at nivicnazdunk, that's Kevin spelled backwards, followed by Knudsen spelled backwards, and Evelyn's is at Evelyn J. Lamb. The show itself also has a Twitter feed. The handle is M-Y-F-A-V-E-T-H-M, that's at myfavoritetheorem. Join us next time to learn another fascinating piece of math.